We're continuing in our series in the Exodus. Our New Testament complementary passage is going to be a portion of a passage that we read last week. And so I'm doing that uh, intentionally. It's not a mistake in your bulletin. But the uh, New Testament passage is John's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. And then we're going to read Exodus chapter 34, verses 1 through 9. So if you would, please open your Bibles to John's Gospel, chapter 1. And in honor of God's Word, please stand. John's Gospel, chapter 1, beginning in verse 14. Hear God's Word. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I spoke. He who comes after ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's right hand, right side. He has made him known. Thus far in the reading of God's word, please turn to Exodus chapter 34, beginning in verse 1 and continuing in the reading of God's word. And the Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first ta- tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite the mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone, like the first. And he rose early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin. And take us for your inheritance. Thus far in the reading of God's word, let us pray. Father, we come to the reading, the preaching, and the hearing of your word. We pray that you would make us alive to it. In Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. There's a beautiful phrase regarding God's forgiveness of your sin. 
And that is that He will remove your sin as far from you as the east is from the west. He will cover over your sin. I want you to take a moment and consider if, like me, (laughs) there are things in your past that you still cringe over. There are moments at night when you are lying in bed trying to get to sleep and thoughts racing through your head and suddenly you go, I remember that thing that I did decades ago. I remember that word that I said that I thought was funny and that somebody else was really deeply hurt by. I remember that thing and it causes me to cringe. And I want you to consider, brothers and sisters, that our memory is better than God's. That God has removed these things from us. He has removed them from His sight. So much so that if you planted a stick in the ground and you started marching east, when you went all the way around the world and came back to your stick, the east would still be in front of you. It is infinite the way in which, the manner in which God covers over our sin. The children of Israel are in this in-between state. They've been given the law, They've been given these instructions from Sinai regarding how they are to deal with one another. They've been given the instructions from Sinai regarding how they are to worship. They've been given instructions from Sinai in how to build a tabernacle. And all these instructions took place while Moses and Joshua were on the mountain. We know it's been over a month that Moses and Joshua have been away, and so the children of Israel fall into that grave sin with the golden calf. God comes, visits them in wrath, causes everybody to drink this tainted water, slaughters 3,000, probably the ringleaders, and then sends a plague. And then turns around and speaks of himself as gracious and merciful, (laughs) tender, Quick to forgive. Why do we have what seems to be a conflict? I think the reason is because the children of Israel don't have a deep enough sense of their own sin. And I would argue that the children of man, (laughs) you and I, People in our culture around us very often do not have as deep a sense of the offensiveness of sin as God does. God cannot abide 
sin. And the children of Israel have to understand this. They've got to understand this before they're ready to build this tabernacle, to build this place of worship where God will then come and dwell in their midst. Before they are ready to enter into worship with God, they have to very clearly understand just how offensive their sin is to God. Now it's interesting as we look at this passage before us, we'll look at it in three ways this morning. We see first in verses 1 through 4, the new tablets. We know that Moses, when he came down, he broke the tablets that God had made. And now we have new tablets in verses 1 through 4. We have the eternal name proclaimed in verses 5 through 7. And then we have this petition for union with God in verses 8 and 9. So the new tablets, the eternal name, and the union with God. Now, when Moses receives the Ten Commandments, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, you shall have no other gods before me, and goes on through the Ten Commandments. If you recall, that is the marriage covenant. That is the marriage vows. You know, when a, when a man and a woman stand in front of each other and they say, till death do we part. Love, honor, cherish, all those things. Till death do we part. We are making vows. And so here in this marriage covenant, God says, this is what I expect from you. And in return, I will be your God. I will be your portion. I will be the one who uniquely cares for you. Out of all the peoples on the earth, you will be my bride. Now we know that the marriage covenant took place because Israel's sin later in Isaiah, in Ezekiel, in Hosea is referred to as adultery. Israel is an adulteress. And to be an adulteress, you got to first get married. <laughs> That's one of the basic qualifications. And Israel is married to God here at Sinai. And what's the first thing they do? What is the next thing after that marriage covenant that we see Israel doing? Committing adultery. Going after the golden calf. You shall have no gods before me. Boom. Right there, as Moses is receiving all of these words, Israel breaks the very first one. And so when Moses breaks the command or breaks the tablets in front of the children of Israel, he is doing a he's he's offering them a visual understanding of how they have broken this marriage covenant. But God rich in mercy, says, I'm not done. Tells Moses, come up, bring two tablets of stone. You'll notice it's a little different. Moses is called to carve out the two tablets, whereas God created the first two tablets. Also, if you'll notice back in Exodus chapter 19, all the commands about 
people are not to graze near the mountain, uh, you're, you're to come up on the mountain. All this parallels Exodus chapter 19 with one exception. The one exception is in Exodus chapter 19, Aaron is told to go up with Moses into God's presence. Here in Exodus chapter 34, Moses is to go up by himself. Aaron has disqualified himself. Aaron is the one who did not stand up to the lynch mob. Aaron is the one who allowed these people to to dominate him and to lead him into this sin. But the fact that God invites Moses back, the fact that God says, I'm not done with you, the fact that God says, I'm going to give you the same marriage covenant and I'm going to write it again with my own finger. It's not going to be the same, but the marriage is going to continue. Is is something that really does shape, isn't it, Israel's story? Isn't that kind of Israel's story from this point all the way through of, of this coming to God, repenting, being restored to God, and then getting lazy and drifting away. And then coming back to God, being punished maybe, and repenting, and revival, and then drifting away. Isn't it, beloved, a little bit like your life and my life? (laughs) These seasons, these seasons in which we're diligent, these seasons in which we're serious, these seasons in which we say, okay, I really am all in, And then the season, and the slow drift, and the slow falling away. Maybe we're not making golden calves, but we certainly are drifting far too often and more than we should. And the reality is that in this context, one of the things that we see from these new tablets one of the things that we see from Aaron not being invited up onto the mountain is that, beloved, infidelity, cheating in a marriage, carries scars. It's going to have an impact on the marriage relationship. And when God says, I am married to Israel, When God says, I am the bridegroom and Israel is my bride. When Jesus Christ says, I am the bridegroom and the church is my bride. When we sin, when we break covenant with God, it is going to carry scars. And that, I think, is the, is the difficulty in trying to balance the two. of these, these sins that I still will cringe over, that I know that God has removed as far as the east is from the west. Yet still, when I engage in sin, there, there's, there's an impact. There's a negative impact. There's a, there's a breaking of that relationship with God. And that's what we call, or that's why we look to sanctification. That, That path of being worked on more and more and more 
so that He who has begun a good work in us will continue that work until the day of glory. But beloved, hear me when I say, if you are not striving, if you're not pushing, if you're not recognizing your need for growth in grace, if you're not recognizing your need for growth in holiness, then you're not understanding the beauty of this marriage covenant. You're not understanding the beauty of what God is doing, that even in the face of infidelity, He will say, okay, I'm going to renew covenant with you. And He'll do it over and over and over again throughout the Scriptures. So these new tablets remind us not just of the seriousness of sin, the seriousness of a broken marriage covenant, but also of God's mercy and forgiveness. And now God declares, secondly, His eternal name. In verses 5 through 7, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And you notice the very first thing that God declares is His mercy and His grace. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Do you know that? Do you know that personally? Your iniquity, your transgression, your sin. Because again, beloved, this is what the offense of the gospel is. The offense of the gospel, the reason that the gospel is rejected, is not that God is merciful. The reason the gospel is rejected is because it requires you to acknowledge that you need His mercy. And that sticks in our crawl. That we don't like. The child who's been raised in a Christian home is always looking at other people that are out there that are worse than he or she is. I know because I was a child raised in a Christian home. And I did that very thing. I understood sin in my mind. It wasn't anything my parents said badly or poorly. It was my own sinfulness, my own pride, my own brokenness that I thought I can point out there and see sin. And I never really wrestled with the fact that I need God's mercy. But as adults, I've, I've, I've shared the gospel with I don't know how many people. One of the things, one of the standard greetings, strangers in Uganda, strangers would walk up to me. Hallelujah, praise Jesus, how are you? And I would immediately go, oh, you're a Christian. Oh, yes, yes, I'm a Christian. Really, then you're a sinner. Oh, no, 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 I'm not a sinner. No, I'm a holy man. Really? But Jesus said, I did not come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners. If you're not a sinner, then Jesus says, I didn't come for you. Half the time that would lead to further conversation. Half the time that would lead to, yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. I was just saying hello. <laughs> and walk 
jacking off. But that confrontation, that discomfort, that, that difficulty that you and I have, you know, I am so forgiving of my own sin. I'm so, I'm so gentle with myself when it comes to sin. My wife said this, and that's why I responded the way I did. My children did this, and that's why I did that. The pressures of my vocation caused me to do... I'm, I'm willing to blame everything and everyone except my sin. Except me. And in doing so, if you are the same, and I imagine you are, you and I simply recapitulate Adam and Eve, don't we? The woman you gave me, she gave me, and I did eat. It's so difficult. In fact, it takes a work of the Holy Spirit. It takes a work of the Holy Spirit to bring you to the awareness that you need God's mercy. But it's interesting as we consider the name of God, even in the name, there's a contrast. Keeping steadfast love, verse 7, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. How do those two things go together? How is it that God can be merciful, gracious, forgiving iniquity and sin to thousands of those who love Him and follow after Him and simultaneously say, and I absolutely will not clear the guilty. I absolutely will visit the consequences of sin, not just on your head, but on your children and your children's children. And I can tell you, Anybody who has grown up in, in I, I would argue, any kind of home can speak about generational curse, can speak about the generational effects of sin, can, can speak about the way that, that a, a being given over to drunkenness has affected generations of a family member, or being given over to, to some other grotesque sin, poisons, uh, the, the issue of infidelity. Certainly Israel is, is guilty of this and continues to be guilty of it, but it destroys not just a, a man and a woman, it destroys children. It, just, it, it changes the way in which they view relationships. They view other people. It, the, the, the impact of sin goes deep and far. So how can God both be merciful and gracious and yet by no means clear the guilty? How can he visit the iniquities if he's merciful and gracious? In part, that's the preparation for the tabernacle. In part, that's what the people of Israel need to hear. to understand what that tabernacle is for, what that place exists for. 
Because the tabernacle, worship of God exists. First, foremost, always. For God's wrath to be turned away. Not by anything that you or I do, but simply by us coming and claiming Christ afresh. The New Testament uses the word propitiation. If you've been around for any length of time and studying the Scriptures, you've probably heard that word. And propitiation is not anything that you do. It's never presented in Scripture as anything that you can do. Propitiation is the turning away of God's wrath. And there is only one who is consistently, Romans chapter 3, Hebrews chapter 2, He Himself, Jesus Christ, is the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, God, I think often, too often, far too often, (laughs) we we try to not be offensive in our proclamation of the gospel. And so you might hear a gospel message that sounds something like this, Jesus loves you and died for your sins. I see it on billboards, particularly when I'm driving through the south. Uh, Jesus loves you. And in a sense, yes, yes, okay, that's fine. But is that really the heart of the gospel? Is that really the first thing that a man, a woman, a boy, a girl needs to hear in order to appropriate Jesus Christ for themselves? I don't think it is. In fact, I think the Bible over and over and over and over and over and over (laughs) speaks of God's wrath visited upon sin. God's wrath visited upon sinners. And the call is to flee from the wrath which is to come. It is to bend the knee now because that knee is going to get bent one way or the other. It is to recognize your need for something to cover you. And you are either going to call for Christ to cover you in His righteousness, or you are going to call for the mountains and the rocks to hide you from His face. Because, beloved, the doctrine of propitiation, that very clear biblical doctrine, is a doctrine that says God is angry. The verse here slow or the, the phrase here slow to anger in the Hebrew it it's it's a metaphor. It's actually long of nose. That God's nose is long. And what that means in the Hebrew is have you ever seen someone truly get enraged? <laughs> I can attest that I saw my dad get enraged on more than one occasion, and it was me that caused it. (laughs) But when someone truly gets enraged, what happens to their nose? 
it swells. <laughs> that, that big breath. Of... And that's what the Hebrew is saying. That God, it takes him a long, long time before his nose swells. That's what the slow to anger is. But beloved, being slow to anger does not mean being a pushover. It does not mean being a pacifist. God absolutely becomes angry. He already has been in Exodus. He does hate sin. And we're kind of left with this unreconciled tension between the two. The vision of God as gracious and merciful. The vision of God as visiting wrath and by no means clearing the guilty. We're kind of left with that hanging. It's just God says, this is who I am. Both at the same time. And then Moses' response in verses 8 and 9. Moses says, if I have found favor in your sight. Now, which one of you are ready to stand before God and say, God, I'm pretty sure I've found favor in your sight? Which one of you are ready to stand in Moses' shoes? And I would say Moses himself couldn't stand in Moses' shoes. Moses, we know, murdered a guy. And he's a fugitive from justice. Forty years in the wilderness. Moses, we know, failed after God called him to return to Egypt. He failed in his responsibility to apply the sign of the covenant to his sons. We know that Moses has been a moral failure. Moses is the one who continually argues with God, saying, I don't want to do this. I don't want to be obedient. You tell me to go to Pharaoh, I don't want to go to Pharaoh. You tell me to go to the people, I don't want to go to the people. You tell me to speak, I don't want to speak. <laughs> he just he continually argues with God about not wanting to do it. So how can he say, I've found favor? How can any man or woman, boy or girl say, God, if I have found favor in your sight, would you do this for me? Is Moses being dramatic? Is he, is he just speaking hypothetically? No, of course not, because the condition that he places is pretty explicit. If I have found favor in your sight, then Lord, go in the midst of us. These are your people. Adopt these people. Stop calling them my people. <laughs> Twice in the past chapters, God has said, the people that you, Moses, brought out. And Moses has consistently said, no, 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 God. Uh-uh. These are your people. And finally, here in his petition, take us for your inheritance. And the answer, really, is all wrapped up in the purpose of the tabernacle. It's all wrapped up in what the tabernacle is. That's the reason it's stuck. This narrative is stuck right here in the middle of all this. 
This narrative is stuck right in the middle of these chapters about how to build the tabernacle, what the curtain should look like, what the length, all of those things. So that you and I see the price that is necessary in order to step from visiting the wrath, visiting the sin, by no means clearing the guilty, to the Lord, the Lord merciful and gracious. That tabernacle is the key. And to understand the tabernacle, you've got to understand the need for the tabernacle. In order to understand Christianity itself, in order to understand your faith itself, Beloved, I hope this message never, ever, ever gets old to your ears. Because the day that it does, the day that this is just, oh yeah, I'm hearing this again. The day we don't hear it afresh and wonder at it afresh. That's the day we become Pharisees. That's the day we become those people that we don't want to be. How does Moses find favor with God? It's certainly not because of his own righteousness. He needs that sacrifice for sin just like you do and just like all the children of Israel do. He needs God's propitiation to be turned, God's wrath to be turned. He needs to be covered in the blood. But I think the reason that God does say that Moses has found favor in his sight. In the same way that God will say this of David, that David is a man after God's own heart. David, the notorious adulterer and murderer. David, the man after God's own heart. Paul, the chief of sinners. The man who literally persecuted Christ's church for being... The church, (laughs) the man who literally attacked the body of Christ until Christ appeared to him in the skies. How can these people be those who find favor in God's sight? I think, obviously, there is the atonement. But I think also there is something that you see clearly in Moses, something that you see clearly in David, something that you see clearly in Paul, say also you see it clearly in Peter, in John, and so many other heroes of the Scriptures. These are men who are fully in. These are people who are fully sold for God. You think of Ruth. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. That, that commitment, I'm not going to do this perfectly, I'm not going to run the race perfectly, but by God's grace, I'm in. I am going to run this race. So that even when it becomes difficult, even when it becomes boring, even when it seems irrelevant, you say, where else would I go? This is life. That heart for God, all Moses' inadequacies and all Moses' sin, 
are covered under the atoning blood that points us forward to Christ. And Moses himself is the man of God, the servant of God. And beloved, that's what God calls from you. He calls you to be all in. To to give yourself to him specifically in the arena of holiness. Specifically in this area of saying, God, let me be conformed as closely as I can to you. That holiness, that mercy and love that we should, that that we're called to exhibit is a mercy and a love which really is just a reflection, isn't it? It's just a reflection. The one before whom Jesus has been portrayed. Jesus has been laid out. Jesus has been shown. In his broken body. In his spilled blood. His shed blood. That one is one who then knows how to live how to communicate, how to walk in grace and mercy, forgiving as he or she has been forgiven.